Well, hello, everyone, and welcome uh, again to Grace. Got a question for you. Whose approval means the most to you? Would it uh, be your spouse, maybe your children, mom, dad, a close friend? For some, uh, it might even be your boss, perhaps a neighbor, whose opinion of you matters the most. The answer to that is important because when you find the answer to that, you'll know what really drives you in life. A young pianist was having his first piano recital in a London concert hall. It was a really fancy, upscale place. And this young man, even though he was only a teenager, he played brilliantly. And when he finished, the audience showed their appreciation for him. A thousand people stood to their feet with boisterous applause, going bananas with praise for him. He had truly done a great job, but he was already behind the curtain. And so the stage manager peeked out and said, look, man, you gotta get back out there for an encore. But with his head down, the young man said, no, I can't do that. He said, yeah, you've got to. They're going crazy. Everyone is standing and applauding for you. The young pianist said, not everyone is applauding. There's a gray-haired man in the balcony, and he's not standing. Curious, the stage manager (laughs) peeked out again, came back and said, Sure enough, you got me there. There's one guy, but there's a thousand others showing their appreciation for you. The young man said, yeah, but that one guy, he's my teacher. The Apostle Paul made an incredible statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 when he said, therefore also we have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. The one in the celestial balcony. So when you measure your success in life, do you look to see if your teacher is standing? Do you listen for the applause of heaven? I believe that today's message is one of the most important I have ever preached or possibly ever will preach. Because in the statement we look at from Jesus today in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, he really gets to the core, to the very heart of what drives us in life. Would you listen to what Jesus, our Lord, said? He said, be careful. This is verse 1 of chapter 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So with open heart in mind, I invite you to go on a journey now as we unpack this one verse which contains uh, 
such a powerful lesson for every one of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ. I, I've condensed this into three statements that I'm gonna make, which will serve as sort of the outline to hold our thoughts together today. So here's the first statement I'd like to make. Acts of righteousness are a wonderful thing. Acts of righteousness are wonderful. Again, Jesus said in verse one, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. Now, what is an act of righteousness? I would suggest to you that it's very much like a spiritual discipline. And Jesus mentions three of them right here in succession in chapter six. He mentions giving to the needy. We're gonna talk about that next weekend at Grace. And then he mentions things like prayer and fasting, which we're gonna talk about in the, in the subsequent weeks, all right? These are what we classically call spiritual disciplines. But I would suggest to you that an act of righteousness not only includes those kinds of things, but it goes way beyond that to include any act that we do for the kingdom of God and with a desire to grow and to honor God as we do it, okay? And there are so many of these that we could name, these acts of righteousness. I mean, we could name things like Bible intake. And that would include things like hearing. So you're engaged in an act of righteousness right now. You are. You're hearing, you're listening to the word of God as it's proclaimed. That's an act of righteousness. It's something we're called to do. Reading the Bible, studying it, memorizing, meditating, all acts of righteousness that are wonderful. All different kinds of service that we could do. Whether people know about it or they don't know about it, anytime we take our time and our energy and our efforts and we serve people or serve some cause or project in the name of the Lord, that is an act of of righteousness. You can include all kinds of things like solitude and silence and so on. And there are also those very public acts of righteousness. I've already mentioned the fact that we're hearing the word of God together. When we come together like this in fellowship and worship, those are genuine acts of righteousness that we're doing in the name of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is an act of righteousness. Confession of sin, congregational prayer, these are all acts of righteousness and they're all designed by the Lord to help us grow in godliness. So please hear me clearly, acts of righteousness are wonderful. If I could just be personal for a moment, some of you need to do more of them. <laughs> you're leaving some blessings on the table that God wants you to have because you're intentionally or possibly out of just a lack of knowledge, you're, you're not engaging in all the great disciplines and acts of righteousness that the Lord has designed for you. So don't miss the first point. Nothing wrong with these things at all. They are wonderful, and as we engage in them, they're designed to help us grow in our Christian life. But that brings us quickly to the second major statement I wanna make. Now watch this one. Acts of righteousness, which are wonderful in and of themselves, acts of righteousness done with the wrong motive, ooh, lead to self-righteousness. 
The more I read the Bible, the more I'm convinced that motive, what's behind what we're doing, why we're doing it, is super important, super important. Now, what was Jesus' motive as he engaged in life and ministry here on the earth for the time he was here on planet earth walking around in flesh? What was his, what was his, what drove him? Well, Jesus thankfully was very clear about that and I think this is important to know since Jesus is our model, right? Jesus said in John's gospel chapter five and verse 30, he said, I seek not to please myself. What a statement this is. Seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So Jesus was super clear about this. His whole driving force in life was the one in the celestial balcony. Jesus was living for an audience of one. He did everything he did in order to please uh, the heavenly father. To some of the Jews who were persecuting him at one point, Jesus made a provocative statement that has caused me to think and think and think. This is incredible. John's Gospel, chapter five, verse 44. He said to these leaders, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Now think about what the Lord is saying there. He's saying, look, how can you really live the kind of life that God requires if you're constantly looking over your shoulder to see if your colleagues are applauding you? The bottom line here, you're really more interested in their appreciation and their approval than you are the Father's approval. And so when you do your acts of righteousness with a motive to get people's approval first, then you will receive no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So acts of righteousness done with the wrong motive lead to self-righteousness. Now, again, since definitions are important, let's try to define what we mean by self-righteousness. Here it is. Self-righteousness, and you don't want this, so (laughs) you don't... You don't want this in your life. We, we really want to avoid this at all costs. It's this smug, proud sense of self-moral superiority as you look down your nose at others. I think the prime example of this was the story Jesus told about the Pharisee in the temple. You remember this guy? He goes to the temple and he stands and prays, oh Lord, I think thank you that I'm not like other men. And he looks down his nose condescendingly at the tax collector and he deems himself much more righteous than anyone else. Listen, God hates that kind of attitude. It literally makes God nauseous. It's the kind of attitude he talked about with the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. We say, I'm rich and increased with goods. I have everything I need, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He said, you make me sick. By the way, if you wanna see how Jesus confronted this sort of attitude, you can read about it in Matthew 23 as he confronted 
the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And over and over again, he calls them hypocrites. What, what does he mean? The focus in their lives had become the approval of their cronies, the people around them, the people in the culture, more than the Father. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look great on the outside. People think you are it, man. They think you're something. They think you're so righteous, but you've lost the idea that everything you do is before God. You're doing it for the approval of those around you. Now, friends, that's the way acts of righteousness tend to work. If they're done with the wrong motives, can I tell you what you get pretty soon? Over time, it won't happen with a snap of a finger, but over time, what you get, if you're doing it with the wrong motives, whatever you're talking about, going to church, praying, giving, serving in some way, fellowshipping with other Christians, any act of righteousness, if it's done with the wrong motives, what you end up with is a sense of duty. I'm checking these things off the list. And we lose the sense that I'm doing these in a very personal way because I delight in the Lord who's given me these things as a gift. I get to do this. I don't have to do this. I get to do this is the attitude that we need. Now, I challenge you, if you don't believe me, to Google holiness movements at some time. Now, I'm not gonna name any of them, but if you look over the last 300 years of Christian history, here's what you'll find. Let me give you Cliff's notes on the last 300 years of holiness movements. They all begin with people who have the right motives. They look around at the status quo of Christianity around them and go, this, surely it ought to be better than this. And it should be. Their assessment is accurate. And so a movement is started to try to get back to the heart of what a disciple's really supposed to be about. And they wanna please God. And so usually along the way, they develop some practices, some methodologies that they believe are gonna help them, some acts of righteousness that they believe are gonna help them please God more. But watch this now. You can just check this out through history. By the second or third generation, it's become all about checking off boxes. And the focus goes from inner holiness of the heart to outward conformity to picky rules. And so the focus then becomes the length of a person's hair. Short hair for men, long hair for women. The length of a woman's dress or skirt. Whether you go to see movies at the cinema or not, whether you play cards or not, whether you use tobacco in any form or not, whether you use alcohol in any degree or not, what you do on the Sabbath day or don't do on the Sabbath day. There's all these little picky rules. And by the second or third generation, the focus has shifted. And the people who are still keeping the picky rules think that God is thrilled with us. We're the holy ones. Wow, we've got it going on. We are the best of the best, but often it's become a duty rather than a delight. A duty rather than a delight. And I'll just give you my opinion. 
I believe that nothing turns people away from Christianity more than when professing Christians are doing acts of righteousness out of a sense of duty rather out of a sense of delight. It is death. It is drudgery. And it sends off a message subliminally to people that this is all about just jumping through these rigorous hoops. It's all about checking off boxes so that we can call ourselves holy. And they've forgotten that it's all about living for an audience of one with a pure motive to please God. And before people realize what, even, what is even happening to them, it's all become a duty instead of a delight. The key to the whole thing. The key to the whole thing is motive. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 1, be careful, be careful. That ought to get our attention. We ought to perk up when we hear Jesus say, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. In other words, if your driving motive is to get noticed by people, we got a problem here. You're no longer living for an audience of one. Now, some of you at this point may say, Pastor Rex, this sounds a little negative to me, brother. This sounds a little negative to me. It sounds to me, Pastor Rex, like you're saying that we are doomed. Every one of us is just doomed to become a self-righteous snob no matter what we do. Absolutely not. I do not believe that we have to become self-righteous snobs. In fact, I think that God has given us an antidote to that. And we're gonna be looking at some of these things in the coming weeks. But right now, let me just quickly show you a few verses that give us the antidote. If your Bible is open there, you can look at chapter six and verse three where Jesus said, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Or move on down to verse six, where he says, but when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Or go on down to verse 17, where Jesus says, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you hear that timpani drum there? Boom, that emphasis over and over again. The key, in secret, in secret, in secret. So the antidotes to this seduction of self-righteousness wanting to look impressive in the eyes of people, wanting to impress your neighbors and your fellow believers more than God, Jesus said one of the antidotes is secrecy. Because let's face it, right? If God's your only audience, hey, he knows what you're doing, and he's the only one that you can possibly be playing to. 
But, but, but that immediately raises a big problem, doesn't it? Because so many of the acts of righteousness that God has called us to do can't be done totally in secret. So what are we gonna do about that? For instance, I'm engaged in an act of righteousness right now. I'm preaching and teaching the word of God to God's people. That's an act of righteousness. So as a preacher, <laughs> how do I battle becoming a self-righteous snob as a preacher? It's a battle. Can I tell you how I believe we need to go about that? I need to constantly ask myself, why am I doing this? And I do every single week. Every single week. I say, God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, would you examine my heart and show me what my real motive is and let my, be, let my primary motive be to please you? I need to ask myself that every week. What is my real goal here? as a preacher, is it so that people would walk away going, wow, he's such a good communicator? Or is my goal that people would walk away going, wow, what a great savior he tells us about. I just... I'm just hungry for more of God because he keeps pointing us to God as the source of all these good things. That's what I want, but my motive is the key to that. But I want you to know, hey, it goes far beyond just one act of preaching. As a Christian leader, many of you are Christian leaders, so I hope you're really listening right now. It's a battle every day because the question is, how do you allocate your time? How do you allocate your time, your energy, your resources? Do I live my life day after day so that people will conclude, oh, what a wonderful, heroic, awesome, caring, compassionate man he is? Do I want them to praise me? Is that what I'm after? Or have I died to my reputation? in a healthy way, in a healthy way. Have I died to my reputation? And because I know clearly what God's agenda is for me, as long as I'm faithfully executing the ministry he's called me to, I don't care so much what people think. Not a flippant way, not in an arrogant way, not in a dismissive way, but I honestly care so much about what God thinks that people's opinion just kind of melts away. I want you to know that's the way I try to live. I don't always hit that bar. Sometimes I care too much about what people think, but I try, by God's grace, to live for an audience of one every single week. See, here's the problem, here's the problem. You're okay with just a, just a honest talk, aren't you? We need to keep it real when we're in church. Most of us are people pleasers by nature. Is that an amen or an oh me? Which are you feeling right now? Amen. Is it an amen or an oh me? Most of us are people pleasers by nature. We, come on, we want more than anything to be admired. We, we, we want people to like us and 
and think very highly of us, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if you live your life, listen, if you live your life according to God's agenda, the way God wants you to prioritize things, I hope you got the heart to to accept this, you're gonna disappoint a lot of people. Jesus sure did. Jesus was not the Messiah or the minister that most people wanted him to be, but he lived for an audience of one. And if you and I live that way, our priorities are gonna be such that we will simply disappoint a lot of people who want us to rearrange our priorities. And so it gets very, very personal. I don't wanna overwhelm you today, and this is not a bellyaching session at all. This is just trying to keep it real for a moment here. I have often said to people through the years, you know what being a pastor is like? (laughs) And every pastor I know feels the same way. I've had literally scores of conversations along these lines with pastors all over the place, all over the US, all in other countries. Every pastor I've ever talked to feels the same way to some degree. Being a pastor is an exercise in constantly disappointing people. It really is. It really is. And if you can't handle that, you can't be in ministry. Because if you're living according to God's agenda, you will never meet all the unrealistic expectations of people. You simply can't. So you've got to be okay with that. It is an exercise in constantly, constantly disappointing people. But if you live according to God's biblical priorities for you, a lot of people, a lot of people in your life, a lot of family members, a lot of friends, a lot of coworkers, a lot of folks in the church simply aren't going to be happy with you. We have to constantly check our motives whose approval means the most to me. Now, some of you have been listening carefully up to this point, and here's what you're concluding in your mind, some of you. Some of you are coming to this conclusion, wow, wow, this is revelatory. Wow, we, I guess we need to stop showing appreciation to people because it sounds like if we do, we're robbing them from their reward in heaven one day. So my goodness, we we need to stop saying thank you to people who've done a good job with something. And when somebody comes and serves and sacrifices and gives their, we don't wanna thank them. We don't wanna show any appreciation or else we're robbing them of their reward in heaven. And we don't wanna send any thank you notes. We don't wanna send any encouragement notes to anybody. We don't wanna thank people who give or people who sacrifice. My goodness, we need to stop having volunteer appreciation picnics for God's sake because we don't wanna be thanking people because we're robbing them of the reward in heaven. If that's what you've concluded, you've completely missed the point. Watch this, watch this. There's no problem with showing appreciation to people. The problem is if they did that act of righteousness with the motive of getting appreciated by people, that's where the problem lies. Did you see the difference? There's a huge difference. Huge difference between those two scenarios. Nothing wrong at all with showing appreciation. That's where we're gonna keep on doing it. 
I love to thank people. I love to appreciate people. I love to say, well done. I love to send notes of encouragement to people. I love to try to lift people up, and I'm gonna keep on doing that, and all of our leaders are gonna be encouraged to keep on doing that, because it's a good thing. But if we do what we do with a primary goal of being appreciated, and getting that pat on the back and getting that note of appreciation or getting recognized publicly? Jesus said, you've got all the approval you're ever gonna get. You have no more reward from my Father who is in heaven. Well, that brings us to our final major statement today. And the last major statement I would make to you is this, the antidote, to self-righteousness is doing all your acts of righteousness for an audience of one. All your acts of righteousness for an audience of one. So let's review a little bit just so you've got it in your mind. First of all, we said that acts of righteousness are a wonderful thing, and they really are. Jesus is prescribing them. He wants us to do them. But, but, acts of righteousness done with the wrong motive lead to self-righteousness. We start deeming ourselves as these wonderful, holy, righteous people when God says inside you've totally missed it because your motive was all wrong in the first place. And then the antidote to self-righteousness is doing all your acts of righteousness for an audience of one. I don't know if you've ever seen that old movie. I think it was in the 1960s. A Man for All Seasons. It tells the great story of Sir Thomas More. This is back in the 1500s when he lived. And Sir Thomas More was a committed follower of Jesus, a man of tremendous integrity. But he was on trial for high treason because he would not approve of some of the things that King Henry VIII had done. And Thomas More had a close friend, a young man younger than he, named Rich, uh, Richard Rich, who testified against Thomas More in court, and Rich's testimony guaranteed that Thomas More would be executed. And indeed, he was. Later, he was beheaded. But as Rich is leaving the courtroom that day, More notices that the young man is wearing a, what's called a chain of office around his neck. And it had this emblem on the bottom of it and this symbol. And, and Thomas More asked the judges what that symbol means. And they said, oh, Sir Richard is appointed Attorney General of Wales. Whoa, that's what that means. And Thomas More has a moment with his friend before he leaves the courtroom. And he grasps this little pendant around his neck and his hands, and with a look of pity, he says, why, why, Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for whales? You, you, could, read, you could read the sadness in his face that his friend had compromised his integrity in order to gain this imminent position. And it's like in his mind, and if you've seen the movie, you know that years before, there's a scene that's less well-known where Thomas More is talking to his young protege, 
And he encourages Richard Rich to, who's very ambitious, by the way, he encourages him to pursue a career as a humble teacher. But Rich says, he balks at the idea, and, and Thomas More says, I, I think you'd be a good teacher, possibly a great one. And Richard Rich says, and if I was, who would know it? And with measured patience, Thomas More said, who would know it? What, you, your pupils, your friends, God. Not a bad public, that. Who is the public? Who is the audience that you're playing to? You see, the faithful disciple of Jesus plays to God, seeking his approval above anyone else. Some weeks ago, I was uh, reading in this book called The Valley of Vision. It's one of my favorite books to use in my quiet times and devotional times. It's, it's a collection of Puritan prayers, and you don't know who wrote the prayer. You, you, there's a, a number of people who contributed to the book, and this is just a collection of those. So you don't know the exact author of the, of the prayer, but, but the one I read was on page 104 and 105 in my copy of this book, The Valley of Vision. These, these prayers are rich theologically and just wonderful. But, but here, here's, the, here's the part of it that just leaped off the page and the Holy Spirit made it catch fire in my soul. The prayer read, raise me above the smiles and frowns of the world, regarding it as a light thing to be judged by men. May thy approbation be my only aim, thy word my one rule. Wow. I was choked up. I was, I was just done for a while. That captures it for me. Raise me above the smiles, all the approval of people, and the frowns, all the critique that you constantly get. Raise me above that. May thy approbation, thy approval be my only aim, thy word, my one rule. Do you live like that? That's what God is after in our lives. Now, let me just tell you this in closing. If you really examine your heart, as I urge you to, here's what you'll find if you're being really honest and if you're seeing clearly. What you're probably gonna find is there's always a mixture, right? A mixture of motivation. If you examine your motives, what you're gonna find is that, praise God, sometimes your, noti your motives are really, really pretty pure here. It really is a motive to wanna honor God and please him, but you'll usually find that there's some other motives mixed in, right? I also want this and this and this along with it. What God's looking for is that we would live for an audience of one and that we would listen for the applause of heaven. And I believe when we live that way, Oh, I believe following Jesus is a delight, not a duty. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and that you've called us to be a people that really live for the approbation, the approval of the Father. Thank you that our Lord Jesus modeled that, that he lived that way. 
and that everything he did was to please his father. Thank you that the apostle Paul modeled that. And he said, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to him. I pray that that would be our prayer and our cry as well. Genuinely, honestly, from the heart that we would live above all else to truly please you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.